when college football was over for me, I turned off football entirely. Like, I didn't watch football again. Football was my life, and man. And you turned it off. Turned it off. Wow. Because that is how I dealt with the pain. Everybody that's an addict, they want to get that first high. You're always chasing it, but you never catch it. Eventually, I lose my job because I'm not showing up to work. I'm you know, I'm sleeping in. I'm missing work. And okay. I got in my car, called my dope dealer up, said, hey, man, I just got off of work early today, man. You around? Can I come by and pick up, pick up some more stuff? That was my reaction to losing my job. Within 18 months from the first year of that pipe, I go from working on Wall Street to living on the streets in Dallas. Homeless. Wow. Living dope houses, sleeping cars. I've slept on park benches, Ken. Driven so how man. does a driven guy who comes from an awesome family who makes it to D1, which we're talking about a very small percentile of high school athletes can make it to D1. I don't care how big the D1 school is. Very small. How does that guy get into meth? Well, my guest went from Wolf of Wall Street to living on the street. My guest today is Damon West, and he destroyed his life. And yet in the moment of no return, heard a story that became a challenge that changed his life and now is changing millions of people's lives. What a story. Get the tissue out and get your notebook out. Let's go. July 30th, 2008. Damon West's life changes forever. What well, happened that day? You don't mess around, Ken. You jump right into it, brother. All right, well, let's go. That's a great place yeah. to start. July 30th, 2008, I was sitting around this little rundown apartment in Dallas, Texas, and I was sitting on this little ratty old couch, and sitting next to me on the couch that day was my meth dealer, this guy named Tex. And, you know, for context, man, 15 years ago, I'm not the clean-cut, polished-looking guy you see in front of you with all these best-selling books, movie deal, family man, businessman, college professor. None of that is going on. 15 years ago, I'm a full-blown meth addict, the head of an organized crime ring, and um, I'm, the, I'm the top criminal in the criminal pyramid. I'm the shot caller of the group. And that day on my couch is my dope dealer. His name is Tex. I'd called him over because I was out of dope. And, and I told Tex, man, you got to get out of here. The cops are looking for me. They're, they're closing in on me. My, my partner in crime, Dustin, had been picked up 15 days, uh, 10 days before. He got picked up 10 days before in a stolen car. So they had my partner in crime in custody, which means it's only a matter of time before they have me in custody. Right. Because in crime, everybody talks. Right. It's human nature. So you were feeling it. Feeling it. I knew I was in trouble. And I, could, I, I, was, I was remember, you know, I don't go into this detail of it much, but I remember seeing cars that I thought were suspicious on the street that right. day. And I was like, man, that's weird. Right. Man, these cars are moving around. But I didn't, you know, my main, my, my, my main thing, I was focused on getting more meth because I was a meth addict. That's what addicts do. We focus and we obsess over the... So what was the crime meth. ring that you were leading? It was a bunch of burglaries, um, a bunch of other meth addicts breaking into the house, about a dozen of us, young and old, male and female, black and white, everything in between, drugs and addiction. And you're breaking in to do what? We're stealing people's property and to trade to trade it off for dope. I got it. It's it's all about drugs. So valuable was, stuff, and then we turn it in, and we get meth. Yeah, man. You fi- you got these other meth dealers out there that'll that'll take stuff off your hands. They'll trade you for dope. Um, and it's sad because the people whose places I broke into, the property I stole, most of that stuff is gone right. because it was all traded off for for dope. And and, and that's the thing about the burglaries. Can I mean, this needs to be said. My victims, the people whose houses I broke into, yeah. I didn't just steal property from them. I stole their sense of security. Yeah. I stole something more valuable than property. Yeah. Something I don't know if they can ever get back. And I can't change that. because right. it, 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 I can't even apologize to them. The state of Texas has a law that says if you apologize to the victims of your crimes, you go back to prison. It's a felony. 
So they have to just live with that right. for the rest of their lives. Oh, sure. That negatively impact a lot of people. Yeah, a I lot never, of trauma. Never hurt anybody physically in my crimes because no one was ever home. Right. Saving grace in the story. Sure. We never ran into our victims. They never ran into us. No one got hurt. No weapons were used. These are property crimes around meth. All, and it starts in the uptown neighborhood of Dallas. They call them the uptown burglaries. They called me the uptown burglar. How long did this go on for? Three years. So for three years, you're evading the law. Oh, man. And But I mean, you know, and Ken, this is the preservation of life instinct that human beings have. Even though I messed up on meth, I, I don't want to get caught. And, sure. and I'm not a dumb guy, right? Right. I was the ringleader. I was a quarterback in college, right? So right. I'm, I'm always been a leader. And I go to the great lengths to make sure I can get away with these crimes. I, one of the first burglaries I committed, I broke into a U.S. post office and stole a mailman uniform. Because mailmen can walk with impunity around neighborhoods, right? And so oh, I became... The, the ultimate disguise. The ultimate disguise. And I would watch neighborhoods and watch condo buildings. When the real mailman left, I would go walking around. Wow. You see the vulnerabilities in a neighborhood or in a condo building. You get into the mail rooms. And inside those mail rooms, if you're the mailman, you have all these slots. And it says, you know, some of the boxes in there say, we'll be out of town from this date to this date. Hold our mail. Or you look in one of those slots and it's got a ton of mail stacked up. That person's not home. Right. On the outside, you have a key to your one little slot. But if you're the mailman, you're inside. Wow. So, yeah, and I would, I mean, I would drop off stolen goods in neighborhoods. I wanted the cops to be looking. You know, uh, you know, the luxury cars that were taken from the burglaries, filled with stolen items. You don't want to keep credit cards, checkbooks, laptops, all that. Dropping them off in wow. different neighborhoods. There's a lot of misdirection going on for right. three years. So this became sophisticated all to feed this addiction all to feed the addiction so back to the it couch. became it became another addiction to be honest with you ken and that's the thing Well, it like, was pretty thrilling i'm guessing you you got you get i got I was, i'll use i statements i got a high from the burglaries itself sure it became addictive the whole ritual of scoping a place out right next you know whenever i did the burglaries i found out that you know it was almost as like the same kind of high as meth not the same it, it, the sense that it didn't last as long right but you got a jolt from that and that's the same thing you see from people with social media and all these other things that give them the endorphin rush the serotonin right. start flooding so this was going on the burglaries went on for three years 2008 july 30th i'm on the couch i'm feeling it i know it's my time is short and right as i'm talking to Tex about it the window on my right blows out and shatters and i mean there's glass everywhere but all I see is that little canister tumbling across the living room floor. It's smoking, right? right? right yeah. And I'm like, I've seen this yeah. movie, man. I know what's about <laughs> to go down. And I try to get out of there as fast as I could, but it was too late, man. This flashbang grenade blows up in my face, bright white light, loud noise, blows me back on the couch. And, and Ken, when I came to, when I can see and hear again, my senses come back. Because that's the thing about a SWAT team raid flashbangs, flashbang grenades. They're trying to disorient you, and it's very disoriented. Most terrorizing thing I've ever been through. Sure. When I can see and hear again, there's this cop standing over me. He's got his boot on my chest, the barrel of an assault rifle, digging in my eye socket. His finger's over the trigger, and he's screaming at the top of his lungs, don't move, don't move. And I'm like, man, don't worry, right. don't worry. Yeah, right? right, I can't move. I can't move, and yeah. I'm not going to move, man. Yeah. And so one of the cops screamed out out loud. I remember, he, he said, we got him. We got the uptown burglar. And that's what they called me, and, that, and they did. They had me. The uptown burglar crime spree ended sure. on that date. They took me to Dallas County Jail. They processed me in. They set my bond at $1.4 million. These are property crimes, remember, Ken. Right. But $1.4 million bond is the clearest signal I've ever gotten that yeah. you're not going to get out of this one, Damon. And, right. and they want to make an example out of me. Sure. And uh, and they did, man. My trial takes place 10 months later. And the, the jury hears the case about Damon West, the guy that had it all in life. 
and I, and I had it all again. All right, I let's, came, yeah, let's go into that. So growing up, what was the what was your life like? Middle class, upper middle class, upper class. What what was yeah, it? Yeah, middle middle class. I mean, my my dad was a sports writer for fifty years. My mother was a nurse, um, a school teacher, then a nurse. Uh, my parents were married for fifty five years. My father just passed away this summer over uh, yeah. with stage four colon cancer. So. When he passed away, they'd been married for 55 years at that point. So yeah. I didn't come from a broken home or split home. And a lot of support. A lot of support, man. A lot of support. I mean, I, and and I had good grades. Um, you were an athlete? I was an athlete. Where'd you play? Texas, man. This is. I yeah. grew up in Texas, man. High right. school football is a big deal it in Texas, is man. It deal. is like the deal, right? Yeah, right. And I got to grow up in that, man. Friday Night Lights. I was a starting quarterback for a 5A school for three years, man. Right. I mean, it just... Yeah. And then I got a scholarship to play football at the University of North Texas. Division one college That's football. That's right. Legit D1 program. That's it, man. And now I'm, you know, by the time I'm 20, I'm the starting quarterback for a Division one team. But here's the thing that happened in my life at an early age. I got involved in substance abuse. And the first drug I ever did was alcohol. I think a lot of people's gateway drug is alcohol. Right. When I'm 10, I get my dad's beer one time. And... But I liked the way it felt. I liked the buzz that I got. Sure. So I started drinking more. When I was 12, I smoked my first joint. Had a lot of character issues. But because I could throw a football, I never really had to deal with those issues because it's Texas, man. High school football is the yeah. thing, and I'm the quarterback. But had it become a problem, or was it just a, I, I'm just sampling, it's a vice, but it's not controlling me? No, it, it wasn't control. I don't think it was controlling me, but I think it was a problem in the sense that every weekend I'm out getting drunk. And, you know, you're drunk, you're driving. We live on the, I live right on the border of Louisiana. And Louisiana, they don't have the same rules as Texas has. I right. mean, you know, yeah. it, when I grew up, Louisiana was 18 years old to drink. But really, if you could put the beer on the counter, you could buy it right. in Louisiana. Um, so, you know, I'm drinking and driving, partying a lot. Not healthy, not safe. Do you think that you're just a kid? Like millions of other kids in America and around the world who just sample uh, alcohol and they go, of course, I love the way a buzz makes you feel. But, but, or is there something else going on to where it maybe eased your brain? Did you have uh, ADHD? Did you have, yeah. was it, was it more than just being a kid and experiencing the feeling? Was there something more there? I'm just curious. Yeah, no, these are good questions. And I, yes, I am ADHD. I didn't, I didn't, get, I didn't know that, but yeah. I just was wondering if it I, calmed you to a point where you go, I need the calm. Yeah. And I didn't get diagnosed with that until I was, you know, sitting to go to a trial when psychologists and psychiatrists are testing you and everything. And they're like, your textbook ADHD. And they even said that the administering of chemicals into your body, especially methamphetamine was like self-medicating. And that's what if people in ADH do. They self-medicate. Yeah, so whenever I was younger, putting the chemicals in, um, I liked the way it felt. I liked the buzz. Um, and it does it calm me down, especially, you know, smoking marijuana at an early age brings right. you down a little bit, right? right? Drinking brings you down. Did you ever play a game on under the influence? No, I never played a game under the influence. I smoked cigarettes a lot when I was, like, I started smoking at a very right. young age. And again, a calming device. Yeah, and Interesting. All, all throughout high school, I mean... I look back now and I like I was a great high school football quarterback. I was a, a really good college football quarterback, but I look back now I'm like I wonder how good I could have been if I wasn't putting the chemicals in. But the thing about me is I was so determined again right. to I was such when I get focused that's the thing about being ADHD, you get focused on something. Right. Your laser focus I'm driven and I wanted to get I wanted to play college football and right. I wanted to play division 1 college football. I would get up you know, in the mornings before school started in high school, and I'd go run. I'd go right. throw footballs through a tire swing in the field across the street. What right. do on the ground? I did stuff other people weren't willing to do because I wanted that scholarship. Always driven. Always driven. So, how know? does a driven guy who comes from an awesome family, 
who makes it to D1, which we're talking about a very small percentile of high school athletes can make it to D1. I don't care how big the D1 school is. Very small. How does that guy get into meth? Well, it seems so out of left field. Right. I can tell you a day that was pivotal in my life. These days that you get a handful of them in life, I call them fork in the road days. These are days your life changes. You're going to make a choice. Yeah. You'll go the right way, the wrong way, but it's a fork in the road. September 21st, 1996, we're playing against Texas A&M, man. It's a beautiful Saturday in College Station, Texas. Yeah. And, Unbelievable environment. Oh, man, it's it's one of the most amazing yeah. environments to play in. That 12th man stuff. I know, I've been there a few times. It's, yeah, it's bananas. Aggies are intense, man. <laughs> That's so, right. But, I, you know, I'm 20. I'm driving my team down the field against the Aggies. But on the third play of this game, I go down. It's a career knee injury. And I never played college football again. I separated my shoulder that day against Texas A&M. No kidding. Yeah, and then... You're throwing shoulder? Throwing shoulder, yeah. And actually, you know, it's the last game I ever played. That throwing shoulder injury sidelined me for the rest of the season. And in the offseason, I'm trying to get my job back, and I cut my Achilles in half. Oh. And that was it. Once you cut your Achilles, it's man, it was over for me. So there I am uh, with no direction in life because my entire identity was wrapped up in being a college football player, man. I put all my eggs in that one basket. And, you know, this is what I learned in life about you can't set your identity on something you attach yourself to. Right. Because that can be removed from you at some point. That's right. Anything can happen. Um, But when I got to that fork in the road in life and my identity was gone, I made a lot of wrong turns. I couldn't deal with life on life's terms. That's the hallmark of an addict. We can't deal with life on life's terms, and so we turn to chemicals. So now, at 20 years old, it's not just drinking a little beer, smoking a pot. I'm doing cocaine. I'm doing ecstasy. I'm doing a lot of painkillers and pills. I've crossed over into very serious hardcore drug use at this point because I'm not, like, calming myself down. I'm trying to pull myself out of this funky world. Yeah, now it's different because, well, you're trying to fill a hole. Yeah, I, I'm guessing it's devastating beyond description. I would call when it you're a D1 athlete and and it's all that, that's a full time job. I don't think to our non sports listeners. Yeah, a D1 athlete, certainly a football quarterback. Sure, at the D1 level, that is a full time job. You're up at five in the morning working out with your team, getting your weight yeah. your weightlifting in. You go to classes like everybody else in college. You have, but you have to take the eight a.m. classes and early classes. Then you go work out. You go watch a lot of film. Especially your quarterback, you're watching a lot of film. Right. And then you have practice, and you usually have another study session, and then you go to yeah. study hall and study for your class. You're done about 8 or 9 o'clock at night. It's a full-time job. I've, I'm sitting here, and I'm thinking, this wasn't just your identity that was stripped away from you. It was your routine. Yeah. It was everything. It was everything I knew. It was You're my, spinning. It was my structure. Yeah. The that's structure what I mean. was gone, man. Everything. Like, yeah. So you lose the identity, and on top of that, yeah, like I'm not a college quarterback anymore, and on top of that, you lose all the structure, all the routine, everything, the discipline, the drive, and you're just floundering. Yeah, and these are the things in life. Like People are faced with these things that happen in life. To make a comparison to what can happen to you in life, like this injury in college that, that derails my life, bankruptcies, divorces, yes. loss of a job. Great you know, point. These are things in life that derail everything. Rock right? our world. Rock your world, knock you down. And when I'm down... And football was the only thing that I had focused on at that point in life that seriously, man. And remember, I worked hard to get where I was, and that's gone now. And I won't find that direction to focus myself on again until, you know, 2015 when I walk out of a prison. But that's a little later in life. My life is rudderless at this point. So you're still at school. Still in school. You're sampling all these drugs. Doing all these drugs. I'm partying. I'm in a fraternity. 
Um, Fast forward a little bit to where we leave school. You graduate? Graduate ninety nine. I was a very functional addict. I mean, I was right. able to graduate. Yeah, you're not college. a loser, dropout. I was close to dropping out, but I didn't drop okay. out. I graduated in 1999. What's the first job? Uh, I worked for this company called Jobs.com. It okay. was during the dot com sure, boom, man. Sure. It was, and Jobs.com was one of those ones. You know, remember the dot com? You know, yeah. in 1999, the dot com thing is moving. It's moving. 2000, the bubble bust. Right. And that's I where I was working in the dot com industry when the bubble busted. And after that job at Jobs.com, I took my severance and I moved to Washington, D.C. I always was fascinated with politics. I got a job working in the United States Congress. I worked for a congressman from Houston. After that, I left Congress to go work for a guy running for president. Who is that? A guy named Dick Gephardt. He was yeah. a Democrat from... Uh, you worked for Richard Gephardt? Yeah, I worked for Dick. Yeah, no yeah. way! I, I raised money for Dick all over America. I was a political fundraiser. Okay. And yeah. so... I mean, he's a legendary Democratic uh, yeah. congressman. Yeah, and politics, okay. were, you know, for the listeners out there, like... In 2004, Democrats and Republicans are not even the same as what they are now. It's unrecognizable. Very, very different. It's unrecognizable. Uh, back then, there was a lot of tension in politics, but at least they talked to each other. Right, you know? sure. People worked together. Right. They found that common ground in the middle, because that's where things get done in politics, right. is the middle. And that's what you're seeing the erosion of in American political society right now, is there's no middle. Right. There's polari- polarizing sides. Yeah. So, so you're working for him, and you're back and forth between Houston and D.C.? Oh, I'm, I'm all over the country raising money Are for Are you Dick. still dealing with substances? Yeah. You know, I'm I, I'm into cocaine a little bit, right. but, you know, I'm, I'm doing a lot of uh, political work. And, you know, in that political realm, you don't want to get caught with cocaine. Right. You can drink a lot, though. And that was the other thing I oh, did a lot. That's part of the lifestyle. I drank, yeah. It was, it was, it was, right. it was occupational hazard, you know, with, <laughs> yeah, with politics, right. man. Yeah. It's a large shrimp and a cocktail. Yeah. You know, a lot of receptions <laughs> every night of the week. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. You know, and, and drinking in politics has always been there. You, you hear stories about just to sure. reminisce on how politics used to be. Tip O'Neill, when he was Speaker of the House, yeah, on Fridays, he would grab a six-pack and drive to the White House and go have a six-pack with his buddy, President Ronald that Reagan. That is absolutely true. And they would discuss. Yeah. That's when the politics got done, man. Yeah. That's when the laws that's got right. made yeah. over a six-pack on Fridays. Yeah. So drinking was a very big part of politics, and, and that was that was really like the, the drug that I did more than anything throughout my entire life was alcohol. Are you still feeling a sense of pain? Uh, from the loss of the identity, is that still happening? Or have you switched gears and you're going, all right, I'm going to go all pile. I'm just curious, where is that part of your yeah. soul, your heart at this point? I have completely, it's a very good question. No one's ever asked me that. And here's the answer to that. When college football was over for me, I turned off football entirely. Like I didn't watch football again. I didn't watch pro football. I didn't watch college. And look, man, I came from wow. a very football background. My dad was a sports writer for 50 years. My dad is from, we're from Port Arthur. Jimmy Johnson is from Port Arthur. Yeah. And so my dad, whenever Jimmy was coaching the Cowboys, Jimmy would, Jimmy told my dad, is it bring him into the games. I put him in, to work on the sidelines. The job on the sidelines Jimmy had for me, I held Jimmy's headphone cord on the sideline. Yeah. You look at all the videos yeah. from the Cowboys going to the Super Bowl and all that. Yeah. I'm on the sideline. Yeah, the point his, is that football is your life. Football was my life, and man. And you turned it off. Turned it off. Wow. Because that is how I dealt with the pain. I just didn't deal with the pain. I just shut it down, closed that door, locked it up. So am I still dealing with it? Yeah, I'm dealing with it, but I'm trying to find direction in life. I'm trying to find something I can sink my teeth into like I did football. But, you know, politics was was interesting. It's intoxicating. Proximity to power was intoxicating. Of course. But I never got anything like that football high, if you will. Right. And so I, I didn't have the direction in my life. And in 2004, Dick drops out of the race for president. He loses in the Iowa caucus. 
And uh, one of my dad's friends, a stockbroker in Dallas uh, for UBS, United Bank of Switzerland. He runs the UBS branch in Dallas. And uh, my dad was telling him about me. And the guy's name was Charlie Eldemeyer. And uh, he told Charlie about me. And Charlie's like, man, you mean Damon's been a political fundraiser for over a year and he's got a book of contacts like that, millionaires and billionaires? Yeah, I want to hire him. So, man, I got this job at at UBS. I mean, didn't even have to interview for it because I've got this book of business. Of course, yeah. So I go to the UBS. I start studying for the Series 7, Series 63. I'm hanging out with those other brokers, and I'm partying a lot, man. This is 2004. Right. And I'm now I'm in a, an environment where doing blow, doing cocaine. It's Wolf is, of Wall Street. It's Wolf of Wall Street, brother. And it's, and it's acceptable. So right. I'm out there partying. And Dallas is a very big partying scene back then that I, I felt I've fallen into. There's drugs and alcohol going sure. out to clubs. So one day at work, I'm passed out of sleep. This is 2004. I'm passed out of sleep at work. Been partying all night the night before. This other broker comes up. He sees me sleeping. He wakes me up, and he's visibly shaking. He's like, dude, wake up, man. You can't sleep on this job. The markets are open. You're messing with people's money. They'll fire you. He said, come on down to the parking garage. I've got something that'll pick you up. And he doesn't tell me what it is, but I, I just assume it's going to be cocaine because yeah. that's my drug of choice at the you're time. You're not worried. Not worried. Because no. you're, you're like, I'm okay, a drug user. What's the next thing? I'll I'm an try addict. It. You know? right, right. I don't know anything about addiction then, but I'm an addict. So I go down to his car. We get his little sports car, a real nice car. He's a very wealthy guy. And he pulls out this glass pipe with these crystal rocks in it. And I'm, I kind of freak out on him, Ken. I'm like, man, what is that? Because to me, it's like something white trash. Like, what, do you, what is, I mean, what yeah. are you doing with a glass pipe? You know, yeah. that's below, that's beneath Isn't that me. interesting? And I'm, all I'm, the stuff you've done to this point. Yeah, and, and I you think see I'm above this guy. And there's a warning system. Though. Yeah, there's a warning system, but it's like a class, like a, it's like a class below me in my mind, right? Like, oh, I see. It's yeah. kind of like this looks a little shady. Yeah, it looks a little shady because okay. it looks like something you see on the street. And I'm a sophisticated guy, right? I'm doing cocaine. Okay, like I'm doing the rich man's aspirin. Right. Um, but this guy pulls out this pipe, and I'm like, man, what is that? And he's like, dude, it's crystal meth. Just relax. And I'm like, man what are you doing with that, that trashy drug, man? I was like, I don't do that. I do, I do blow. He's like, dude, trust me. Try this stuff one time. He said, you're going you're gonna to love this stuff. And it's a big upper? The ultimate upper. Okay. I smoked that drug one time, instantly hooked. Just like that. It was like touching a live wire. So much so, Ken, that when I touched that drug for the first time, you could have put me in a room with a mountain of cocaine and I never would touch it. And I never did. That was the last time I ever did cocaine. This is 2004. When I tried meth for the first time, my coke addiction's gone. And and now you're able meth. to perform on this. At first, I thought it was the wonder drug because you're up for like three or four days at a time. You're focused. You're like, remember, the psychiatrist, psychologist told me when I'm getting ready to go to my trial, self-medicating by doing methamphetamines is very typical for people with ADHD. In fact, the medication that we give you for ADHD is amphetamines. I'm smoking methamphetamine. And so this is just a, and so it's it's a, a super focus. You're able to focus. Super focused, but you're up for many days at a time. Meaning what, no sleep? No sleep. What goes up comes down. Oh, and so, I see. So then you, it's immediately addictive because you, you have to have it to you perform. Have to have, you become physically addicted to it. Wow. You get a physical addiction. There's, there's drugs that you get physical addictions to. Opiates are like that. Opiates are the, the biggest physical addiction okay. I think that gotcha. people can get to. But um, so it, now you're hooked. Now I'm hooked, and it's all I do is I mean, you know, I, I smoke meth, and I'm getting ready to try to take the series seven. But I, at first, I'm focused, super focused. But now I'm scattered all over the place, and it's not. And I'm trying to catch that first high because that's what everybody that's an addict they want to get that first high. You're always chasing it, um, but you never catch it. Uh. and um, eventually I lose my job because I'm not showing up to work. I'm you know I'm sleeping in. I'm missing work. And okay. Charlie Odomar brings me in the office one day and he's like, hey, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, man, everything's great. And I'm high as a kite when he's talking to me. Right. 
He said, well, you failed your Series 7. You failed your Series 63. Wow. You're fired. Mm. And I couldn't even go back to my desk. He's like, we'll, we'll bring your stuff out to you. I got in my car, called my dope dealer up and said, hey, man, I just got off of work early today, man. You're around. Can I come by and pick up, pick up some more stuff? That was my reaction to losing my job. Right. Didn't even care. Didn't. Here's what I found, too, Ken. Addicts. When we hear addiction in this country, we first go to drugs and alcohol. That's where our minds go. That's what we hear when we think about addicts. But addicts, you can be addicted to almost anything in this life. Right. Food, money, clothing, shopping, sex, pornography, the internet, Instagram, whatever right. it is, social media. Here's addiction in a nutshell. Addicts give up their goals to meet their behaviors. Yeah. That's what addicts do. Yeah. We give up goals to meet behaviors. Driven people, focused people, successful people, they'll give up bad behaviors to meet their goals. That's right. Not an addict. We give it all away. And I, I was like every addict in history. I gave away my job, my home, my car, my savings account, my family, my tether into God. Within 18 months from the first year of that pipe, I go from working on Wall Street to living on the streets of Dallas. Homeless. Wow. Living dope houses, sleeping cars. I've slept on park benches, Ken. All right, I want to go back for a second because I'm, I'm just curious. I don't want to stay here long, but I, the moment that you lose your job, I understand you're high. I understand you're an addict. But you said something. You said, I didn't care that I lost my job. Is that true? Or was it not at least bone crushing on some level, no matter how high you were, no matter how, how addicted you were? Is it true that you didn't feel another sense of loss? I think that the thing I was concerned about more than anything is my family was going to find out about that. That was going to be, how was I going to explain that to them that I got? Because remember, it's my dad's friend that hired me. hundred percent. They're going to find out about that. Yeah. And addicts, we live in shame of the things we do. I've never met anybody, Ken, that was an addict that said, Hey, when I was younger growing up, I wanted to be a drunk. I wanted to be a drug addict. I want to be a criminal. I want to be a thief. Right. You know, growing up, I wanted to be Jerry Maguire. Before there was Jerry Maguire, I wanted to be a sports agent. One day I right. wanted to play pro football. Right. But I became all those other things because of addiction. I never met anybody in addiction that said, hmm. hey, that, that's what I want to be when I grow so up. So shame is the... Shame is a big thing with addicts. And that's Let me ask I, you this. Does shame start first and then the the addiction is to cover up the shame or to take the feeling away from shame? Oh, it's yeah, it's a vicious cycle. So shame, shame is first. Shame is a big... Yeah, shame is a big part. Well, I think that... I think, like, in my case, I can just talk from... I That's what I want to know. Like, yeah, was in, there a in my sense case, of shame? I put in the chemicals first, and I felt the chemicals. I liked the way it felt. And okay. I knew that any time there was shame, stuff I had to deal with, I could just deaden that by, by putting the chemicals in. Got it. And especially when you get to the hardcore drugs, man. You're that's a, Those are uppers. Cocaine, meth, those are uppers, man. You're, you're picking yourself up. So shame is a big thing in addiction. And... and Look, not to sit here too long, but but in life, I think every addict in life has to have a program recovery. And a program recovery is how you how you have a program around you to keep you sober because you're going to have these thoughts the rest of your life. Addicts, we have a three-part thought process. Addicts have a thought, let's say it's to drink or do drugs. That thought becomes an obsession. We obsess over it. Then it becomes physical. We put in thought, obsession, physical. And here's the thing about your brain, Kim. Your brain has this thing called euphoric recall. Euphoric recall is when you only remember the good stuff, you forget about the bad. Right. And in addicts, we have euphoric recall on hyperdrive. Right. You know, we forget about the bad times. We just remember that good high and how that felt and how that takes us away from the bad times, the shame we may feel. In a program recovery, you work, mine is AA. I go to AA meetings. I'll, I'll do it the rest of my life. I got a right. sponsor. I talk to him every week. We work the steps. In the 12 steps in AA, 
you get to the fourth step, which is where you make a searching and fearless moral inventory. Inventories are important, Kim. A business that does not regularly run an inventory will go broke. Right. Because you got to know what you have on the shelves, right? right. You got to know what you have in stock, what you don't have in stock. Yeah. You'll go broke too if you don't work a personal inventory in your life. Right. And that's what we want to do. We want to find out what are our resentments? What are the things we fear? Mm. Why do we have these hangups? What are the things we're ashamed of? We get them all on paper and we start working our way through them. And in a personal inventory, you want to find out the role that you play in all these problems. Mm-hmm. Okay, I feel shame about something. What role do I play? Well, here's the things I've been doing. I've got to work on those things over there. That's the that's what a program recovery does in a nutshell. Wow. It gets you to work through all that stuff. And in the shame part, you come to step eight and nine. Step eight in the 12 steps is you make a list of all the people you've harmed. Right. And step nine is when you make the amends to the people that you've harmed. Yeah. Except when to do so will cause them or you harm. Like, in my case, I can't go apologize to any of the victims of my crimes. That would cause me harm to go back to prison. Right. And in that case, you make what's called a living amends. Living amends when you just go do good deeds, you expect nothing in return. That's how you deal with the shame of what you've done. You make the apologies to the people you've hurt. Yeah. But people that don't go through a program recovery, they carry that around with them forever. And that's why they keep going back out in their addiction. Because all this shame, it bottles up, it takes them. You got to keep your side of the street clean is the point in program recovery. Yeah. I, I... I just think it's so powerful for our audience. And I'm just thinking in my own life, what am I ashamed of? And shame is this unbelievably debilitating coat that we can put on that is so heavy. And it, it at the end of the day, it just makes us feel like we aren't worth anything or we Absolutely. shouldn't carry ourselves out in public. So what do we do? We retreat to a cave, essentially, mm-hmm. of medication. Absolutely. I just think there's somebody need to hear that today. Oh, absolutely. I, I just, and it doesn't have to be like something terribly awful against humanity. No. But, but maybe something that a parent said to us or a coach or a teacher. I, you know, I was asking you about the ADHD because I, I think that in our American education system, we have a one size fits all system and kids like you and me who I wasn't a good student because uh, of my ADHD. I just was not a good student only in the things I was just interested in. But I mean, the amount of some kids are just carrying around shame because of their grades. Right. 100%. I mean, it could be that it doesn't mean you've done something. Well, when we grew awful. up, because we're, we're, we're about the same age. That's we, right. We grew up, they didn't have anything. Called, they didn't have no. ADHD. They just, no. you dealt with it. Yeah. It my like, teacher in third grade, Miss Woodall, tied me to my desk. I mean, you know, those little desks you would slide into, they got the little yeah. open side. She had a rope right there that when I got in my desk every morning, she would tie me up in there and make sure I couldn't get out of my seat. I'm out bouncing around. Like, that's not good. Yeah, but I mean, like... What message does that send? Yeah, but today, you would have been... I would have been diagnosed inside of 10 minutes. This kid's ADHD. Yeah. Yeah. But also, Ken, I mean, just not to go down this road too much, you can go too far with trying to deal with... to give coping mechanisms to deal with stuff. 100%. That the the kid, the family, the parents are really kind of the ones that are at fault with that, too. We we coddle the kids. We make it too easy for them. We don't make them deal with things. They can't ever be wrong. They can't ever lose. That's right. Participation trophies. 100%. All this other stuff, man, is terrible. In the U.S. Army, I deal, I work with the the Army now. The Army brings me in to train troops on the coffee bean mindset. We'll talk about the coffee bean. Yeah, we're getting to it. Yeah. But one of the things the Army deals with is that a percentage of their, their enlistees that come in, the troops that come in, they get these broken bones and they get injured a lot in basic training they fall down and break femurs and break tibias and fibias it's called soft bones their army's trying to figure out how to deal with what they call soft bones and it's from these kids that have grown up inside their houses their entire 18 years they've never been outside they didn't fall out of trees they didn't skin their knees up riding bikes 
soft bones is something the U.S. military is dealing huh. with. And they have to put them on the sidelines, rehabilitate them, give them calcium pills, right. try to strengthen their bones up because for 18 years, that they didn't do anything. That's the parents' fault, Ken. Right. That's the parents. One hundred percent. Not parenting, giving your kid a device. You know, yeah. the, letting the devices raise your kids. That's terrible. Yeah, I get it. It's it's absolutely true. Okay, so you get arrested that day. You're getting processed. The uh, trial uh, takes six days. The jury deliberates for ten minutes. The jury comes in. Your lawyer says to you, "This is not going to be good." Yeah, I know it's not going to be good, yeah. man. Ten Pre- minutes is fast, brother. That, that's I mean, not like, good. It's Pre- like, yeah. yeah. Prepare for the worst. Anybody that's ever seen Law and Order, you know, if a jury comes back fast like that, yeah. And um, they sentence you. They sentence to me. essentially life. Sixty-five years in prison. Sixty-five. The judge years. read the sentence out loud with a smile on his face. Judge Snipes, he was, you know, he was elated. The prosecutor was elated that that was a life sentence because here's what I want to ask you: When that decision comes down. I mean, it's one thing for her to say, this isn't good, prepare for the worst. But what did it feel like? Can you recall Yes. what it felt like when you heard 65 years? Being punched in the stomach. You ever had the wind knocked out of you? You Yeah. Hit in the stomach really hard? Many times. And you you can't breathe? That's what it was like. It was like suffocating a little bit. And the other thought that went through my head is, oh my God, my parents heard that. Yeah, they were in the courtroom. they're, They're in the courtroom for six days. They were there. They loved me. They supported me. My mom told me when I was in Dallas County Jail, she said, baby, she said, uh, we've loved you unconditionally ever since the day that God loaned you to us. Yeah. She said, do you understand what I'm saying? And I was like, yeah, I think I do. She said, good, because she said, I want you to know something. We just gave you back to God. There's nothing we can do for you more damage. She said, you are now a captive audience to God, mm-hmm. and you better start listening to God. And she told me when I was in Dallas County Jail, that Damon, I've been praying for this. And I'm like, what do you mean? You've been praying for me to be locked up? She said, my only prayer to God was that God would save your soul. And you're in a place right now where God can save your soul. And I don't know what's going to happen to you at this trial, but I know that you're in a better place than you were living on the streets. And that kind of comes back into my mind right after I get sentenced to life in prison is, oh my God, my parents just heard that. And what does that do to my mom's thought about God on this thing? Because I've I've torn my family apart with this thing. My, my biggest victims are my family. Mm-hmm. And if anybody would have ever done to my family what I did to my family, then I'd probably try to kill them. Right. But I'm not going to kill myself. Right. But the jury just took my life away. Were you open to what she was saying? Did you have a relationship with God at that point? If you did, what was it? Yeah, I had a relationship with God, but it was a very one-sided relationship with God. It was right. like I wanted to God on my terms. Right. Um, I prayed every night in Dallas County Jail before my trial. Oh, I, you know, there's no atheists in foxholes, Ken. So on the other hole. side of that, when they lead you out and they take you, and you've got about, I think I, I know your story, it's about two, two and a half months before they're going to take you to penitentiary, yeah. the state penitentiary. Are you mad at God? Are you questioning God? Where What's going on? No, quite the opposite. So when I prayed before the trial, it was to, so I could get out and get high again. Like, I'll be, a, I'll be a better guy. I'll get a job. I'll just smoke meth on the weekends. Wow. That's it. That was my prayer. That's the addict's prayer, brother. That's what we. That's what addicts. So I've heard you say that you're still going after all this. You're going. If you can get me out of this, oh, I'll only hit, do it a little bit. I haven't hit rock bottom yet. Right. You know, but the trial, like my book, the change agent. That's where the prologue starts off. Rock bottom is May eighteenth, two thousand nine. That's the last day of my trial. You know, that's the sixth and yeah. final day. They come back with. That's the, when you hear the sentence, and that's rock bottom. Yeah. Here's the sentence. Like you know, you asked me what it felt like being kicked in the stomach. My parents hear that. But it felt like rock bottom. And I'm like, I, this is rock bottom. 
right after the trial was over, my mom and my dad get a real quick visit with me. My mom makes me promise I won't get to any of these gangs and I won't get any tattoos. In fact, she says, no gangs, no tattoos. Come back as the man that we raised or don't come back to us at all, mm-hmm. Damon. I'm not playing. That stuck, didn't it? Stuck, man. But I didn't know how I was going to do it, man. And I remember just the, I agreed to it, but I was so full of fear. Yeah, and how could is, you even know what it's about to be like? Yeah, because I've never been to prison. I don't know anybody that's been to prison before. So I get back to my pod that day. I got, I got a couple months before the prison bus comes to get me. May 18, 2009, it's a very big day in my life. Yeah. It's the day that I get sentenced to life in prison mm-hmm. when I lose my life to a jury in Dallas because of the things I did. So I, I want to also make sure everybody sure. knows right. I own all my behaviors. I right. deserve to go to prison. Right. And now I'm going. But on that day, I get back to my pod in Dallas County Jail. And, and all the other inmates I live with in this pod, they're all staring at me. My, my, my trial was very high profile. It was on TV every day. One of those courtroom dramas. Everybody knows I got life. And I mean, everybody's just staring at me, Kim. No one will come near me. I think they're afraid they're going to catch a life sentence, right? <laughs> this guy's contagious. Right, right. So if I get too close to him, and uh, I mean, all I want to do is cry. You, but you can't cry in that environment. You, you can't. So oh. I have this stone face, and I'm walking through. The only place you can cry in a jail and a prison is in the shower, because nobody can tell you've been crying, right? The, you're right. coming out of the. It's a wet environment. Your eyes are watery anyway. So I go to my bunk and I get my shower stuff, my shower shoes, my other pair of boxers, my soap and my shampoo and towel, and I go to the showers, turn the shower water on. Shower water hits me and the tears just start coming. It's just water where I start crying. I, I'm bawling. And I'm talking to Jesus. I'm like, man, I'm, I'm lost. I don't know what to do. Mm. I'm sorry. Will you take me back? And man, it's that moment right there. Jesus is talking to me in the shower. Come on, Damon, get on my back. Let's go. I got you. Right. There was no admonishment. No, like you didn't listen to me. You didn't do what I said. That's how it is with the power of Christ, man. Right. You just gotta. You yes. just gotta say, hey, man, I, I, yeah. I'm ready. I'm, I'm yeah. ready to go. And he's ready. He's waiting for yes. you. That's the thing about Christ. He's always waiting for you. You know, some people, people will say, like, well, you, someone found God when they were in prison. Man, God's not hiding. Right. <laughs> Where did you find him? Under your bunk? Isn't that true? You're the one that's been hiding. Yeah. And I'd been hiding from Christ all those years. When you live in your addiction, you can't worship two masters, mm. you know? And yeah. your master is the drug. That's the thing about addiction, man. Most addicts that I've met, people, they're uh, most addicts that I've met, Kim, they're not bad people. They're sick people that do bad things in their pursuit of their high. And I, you know what? I'm, I, I agree with it, but I, I, I want to reframe that just to, and, and tell sure. me what you think of this. They're not bad people. They're people who think that they're bad. Yeah. Based on what you told me. Well, they've done bad things. They have. Yeah. And, and so have I. Yeah. But, but there, there, there's a difference between me uh, and, and an addict in the sense of we've all done bad things. But they think they're bad. Sure. It becomes their identity. The shame is what you're... I'm coming back to you say... I, the shame. It's very powerful. I've never uh, heard it shared that way, um, that we're all one bad moment from becoming an addict. Yeah. And, and and when I... Again, like I go back to the definition of addiction, it's not just drugs and alcohol. No. This is anything. That's like, exactly so right. People cope in different ways with hey, their shame. People are sh- addicted to shopping. Yeah. People Gambling. salve their wounds with, with debt. Yeah, credit cards or gambling. To yeah. your point, those you, those packages coming in from Amazon all the time. You know, it, people go watching these these yeah. these shopping shows all day long and shopping. Man, they yeah. that feeds their brain. They get the they get a, they get the rush from that. Man, they get the balance. It's a loss of value. That's a loss of value. It's that's a good way to put it. 
And when you make the apologies that you have to make in a program recovery, the ninth step for us in AA, when you make the apology, here's two things that apologies do in life, and someone out there needs to hear this. When I make an apology to someone I've harmed, and I have to, this is at the end of the day, I'll tell you what I do about ritual is, but I've got to make apologies. I can't live because if I carry that around, that can become a resentment at me. Yeah. You know, I can resent myself no for question. the things I did. But the apology does two things. First, it's going to free the other person of what you did to them. That's the most important thing because they didn't deserve whatever it was you did. Right. Let them go, set them free, right. make the apology. But here's the thing about apology. An apology has a period at the end of I'm sorry. There's no comma, but. Mm-hmm. Now, now you're justifying what you did. It's not even an apology anymore. It's something totally different. Sure. But the apology, when made the right way, here's what you have to know. Someone you're giving an apology to doesn't have to accept your apology. That's right. That's not a part of the equation. That's right. The transaction is, I'm going to make this apology because, one, I'm going to free that person from what I did to them. Yeah. That's going to set them. Whether or not they set themselves free, I can't control that because I can only keep my side of the street clean. Right. But if I make the apology, I give them the chance to free themselves from what I did to them. Right. And then maybe it takes longer depending on how bad the offense was. But the other thing that it does, it frees you mm-hmm. from carrying that around. Yeah. I don't have to carry that around for the person that I harmed. That's right. The shame. Yeah. It frees you from the shame. And Apologies that's so, are good for that's that. That's such a huge part of the value issue. Okay. Our time, I want to get, I want to fast forward. You're in the county jail. I, I love that you shared the, the, the promise to your mother. And now you're going, all right, how do I, how do I survive this? And you run into a guy. Yeah. 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 So this who is, drops a, an unbelievable parable or a metaphor on you. Yeah. That sets you up to win. Share who's the guy. And what's the the metaphor? So to set this up, just remember, so I, the, the day that they took my life from me it, with the trial, with the verdict, uh, I come back to Christ. I get my life back, right? So I, I, I'm, I've given my life to Jesus, mm-hmm. and I'm walking around, and it's hard, man. I'm scared to death. I don't know what to face. And this is the thing, you know, you, you know, I learned from a lady in prison that was a volunteer chaplain. She told me the secret to faith was that if you're going to pray, don't worry. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to worry, don't pray. Mm-hmm. That's the secret to faith. You're going to let God do his job or you're right. going to try to do his job for him. I didn't know what the secret to faith was when I was in Dallas County Jail waiting to go to prison. But I did know that God can use any messenger to get through to you. And these messengers in life, they don't always look like you can. Mm-hmm. They don't come with the same background. Sure. They could be totally different. One of the biggest messengers of my life was a black Muslim man in Dallas County Jail. This guy looks nothing like me. He's from the streets of Dallas. Mm-hmm. He's a Muslim. I'm a Christian. Yeah. But he reaches out to me. He's always making sure I'm you know, okay. He's a real positive guy. His name is Muhammad. And he shares with me one day. He said, here's how you're going to keep the promise to your mom. He said, I want you to imagine prison as a pot of boiling water. And you're going to have three choices how to respond to this pot of boiling water in life. You can be like a carrot that becomes soft in the boiling water, an egg that becomes hard, or you can be like a coffee bean, mm. which changes the pot of boiling water into a pot of coffee. Yeah. And he said the coffee bean is the only thing that can change the water because the power was inside the coffee bean right. to change the atmosphere around the coffee bean. And he said the power is inside you, just like it's inside the coffee bean. And he said, in fact, the coffee bean is the smallest of the three things, but it had so much power inside of it, it changed the world around it. Mm. And, you know, even though this guy's a Muslim and I'm a Christian, I recognize right away that the power of the coffee bean he's talking about is the power of Christ inside you. Right. It's in you. It's in all of us, you know. But we have to believe in that. We have to have faith in the, in the power of the coffee bean, the power of Christ inside of us. And so when he told me this, it was like a light bulb went off. It was like, I, 
I could wrap my brain around that. I've got three choices, and the choice is mine. It was empowering, Ken, because now the power was back inside me. And if I keep the power inside me, well, I wouldn't just survive prison. I could thrive inside of a prison. And uh, the last words he ever said to me, the last words he ever spoke to me on earth, be a coffee bean. Mm. And then the prison bus comes to pick me up. They, takes me, they take me off to the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, and I have to go live in a supermax prison. And when you get a life sentence in Texas, they segregate you out from the rest of the prison population. They want to get escape off your mind. And so their answer to that is they take you and they put you on a building with nothing but lifers. Mm-hmm. And you have to live on the life sentence building for five years before you can come off the building. So mm-hmm. it means you don't get to go to school. You don't get a job. You don't get to leave the building. The rec yard's even on your building. Mm-hmm. So you just stay on this building, this island that's really secure with 432 people. Mm. Everybody's got life. It's the most dangerous place in the world because it's the most hopeless place in the world. Right. When there's a void of hope, yeah. darkness, negativity, evil will fill that void. That's why prisons are so dangerous. Ken, that's right. Because there's a lack of hope inside that place. Yep. The movie Shawshank was so powerful because the movie Shawshank is really just about hope. Yeah. Depending no on the perspective of the guy. If you're Andy Dufresne, you're the guy with hope. If you're Red, yeah. you have no hope. And it was Andy who poured hope back into Red. Yeah. And by the end of the movie, Red realizes hope is a good thing. Yes. Every human being has to have hope. When I walked in prison, Ken, you could smell it in the air. You could smell the hopelessness. You could smell the fear yeah. in the air. And um, prison was hard. Most yeah. hard, The hardest thing I've ever been through. Most violent thing I've ever been through. For two months, I, caught, I fought constantly. And I probably got in three dozen fights those first two months, and I lost 75% of my fights. I got my butt kicked all over prison. Right. But I won all my fights because Muhammad told me this. He said, you don't have to win all your fights, but you do have to fight all your fights. Which is such a mic drop. Oh, my God. There's a lot of depth in that statement that you have to sit in. And you don't don't have to win all your fights, but you do have to fight all your fights. And the idea there is, is I think that's a, a challenge to... The, how to fight through adversity. Here's the expectation you most meet of us it have head on. With, with adversity, right? Yeah. We got to take care of it. That's, we got to win. We right. got You can't, you know, if you don't win, you lose. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's just staying, it's just f- facing adversity. He brought the expectation back down here. Yeah. Like, I just have to survive. If I can, if I just show up right. and I face my adversity, if I get knocked down and I get back up. I learned something. I don't have to win. That's it. Winning is getting back up. That's so true. That's the victory. Yeah. And that's what he's telling me. You get knocked down eight times, yeah. get up nine. Yeah. And that's all it's about. And that's true in life. No one counts your wins and losses. All y'all listen to this, no one no one pays attention to us that much. They don't, yeah. They're not watching that closely. But they do watch to see. Everybody watches to see, does he or she get back up when adversity hits? And let right. me tell you something. In life, what I've learned, you just get back up. Yeah. You just keep going. We're going to get to the rest of the story, folks, I promise, because it's a fabulous <laughs> ending. However, um, I, I heard you just recently minutes before we started this conversation you spoke to our entire team and i heard you describe just like you did the audience the metaphor of the coffee bean and and i immediately started just kind of going a little deeper into it and i'm sitting there thinking about it the power of the coffee bean is that when it's in the boiling water what happens to the bean itself the, the bean releases the energy yeah from but, within but it. why because the boiling water breaks it completely down, yes? Right. And it can't do its job till the water gets the hottest. That's the point. It so I've never actually seen it, but I'm, I'm sitting here going, I'm assuming that you put a, a one coffee bean in a pot of boiling water, the boiling water breaks it down completely to liquid, yes? Right, right. All right, so this is where I'm going with this. This was like, I'm sitting there listening to you, and I'm going, that's the beauty of it. It's not just that the coffee bean has inside of it the power to 
change the water into coffee. It's it that's part of it. That's the influence piece. But it is that only by being put into the extreme boiling water and it gets completely broken down does it have the power to influence Same. that's what i i was like so the trials you, you grabbed you, it you started off with adversity that's adversity the coffee bean responds to adversity differently by going adversity in life is going to break me down divorce bankruptcy disease i mean you name the crap of life but when we allow it to when it breaks us down we allow it to do something with us that when we're completely broken down, we still have the ability to influence. It transforms us. It's the transforming power of adversity. It's the agent of change. Yeah. I was sitting there going, and oh, So that's... you grabbed it. You understand. So this is the yeah, The thing. bean completely dissolves. Yeah. But in doing so. It, be it becomes, the water becomes coffee. It's, it's, it's it changes really... the entire environment, and that's what happened in my life. And I and I tell people, you know, I don't, you know, I don't always go down the faith road, but let's talk about that. Oh, I, we have no problem talking. about I it. think that, you know, when when God God shows that He's real by taking people's lives and doing that in their life. That's how we know God's real, man. God doesn't set bushes on fire. That's Old Testament. Yeah. He sets people on fire, right? And whenever this SWAT team comes in, the trial goes on, the, you know, the life sentence, God is breaking me down. When, without question. Destroying everything that was before me, everything yeah. that I yeah. was about, all these different, you know, different things I worship, sports, drugs, you know, women, all this other stuff, the vices in life that I'm going after, breaks all that down. There's mm -hmm. nothing left of the old person mm -hmm. and builds me back up. Mm -hmm. Because I have to have the faith to build back up, right? Yeah. And that's what's happening slowly inside this prison. Mm -hmm. I'm turning this prison, this maximum security prison, into a pot of coffee. And, you know, when I'm transforming this prison, it, it's me using the power of the coffee bean. Things like smiling everywhere I go. Because, you know, Muhammad told me, he said, you either infect a room when you walk into it or you affect the room. Right. You're the disease, you're the cure, right? So I'm using the power of my, my facial expression to change the energy around me. But one of the main things I'm doing that transforms the prison is I'm restoring hope. I'm Andy Dufresne, right? How are you doing it besides the smile? Man, guys, like one of the things I learned in life, the secret to life is servant leadership. Mm -hmm. I've got to find a way to serve when I'm inside this prison. When I get into recovery, especially in prison, I get into this AA group. I've, I learned that I have to serve to be great. Yeah. And so I'm finding ways to serve. And, you know, I can't take any college classes, but... I've been to college. I'm in a, a, a rare group of people inside of a state prison that has this, you know, unique educational background. There weren't a lot of guys with bachelor's degrees in prison. weren't a lot of guys. There was nobody else that worked in Congress, worked on Wall Street, right? Sure. So I could teach guys how to read, how to write. I would hold class inside of a prison cell that, you know, we couldn't leave our cell to go do anything. But I had groups of guys that would come to me to teach them how to read and how to write. The humility it took for a grown man that's 56 years old right. to ask me, can you teach me how to read so I could take the GED test one day and I can be a better man for my family. Wow. Restoring hope. Guys, I would notice this in the day room when the stock market report would come on in the news. You know, it comes on the news all the time at the end. You know, yeah. middle towards the end, the Dow Jones, the NASDAQ, sure. the S&P 500. I noticed the news is big in there. Everybody watches the news because that's our connection to the free world. So the news, everybody's locked in watching the TV. But when the stock report would come on, everybody would kind of put their head in the ground. They kind of kick their, kick the ground a little bit, and it dawned on me, man, these guys don't know what what's what they're talking about. So I, I went up one day while the stock report's going on. I'm like, 
Do y'all know what they're talking about? And there were guys in there like, oh, you're trying to make fun of us now? No, but I can teach you what that is. Mm. I can empower you with the knowledge of what they're talking about. So I started teaching guys about the stock market in there, about investing money. And before you knew it, man, these guys had their own black market stock market. They were buying stuff off the commissary, soups and stamps and stuff like that. And they started their own little stock market game. These guys were empowered with knowledge. Yeah. That's the thing I had I to transfer. It. We all have something to transfer to humanity, right? Right. My job in there was to transfer hope yeah. through things that I had in life that were unique in there. And that's the thing about the quilt. We'll call it a quilt of society. When we get away from just being locked in our own selves and being being siloed and we say, hey, what do I have to offer the society around me? That's how society grows. Yeah. That's how we become a better version of ourselves. Right now, we don't have that going on a lot in society. You know, yeah. uh, Social media is actually antisocial. You know? It silos people away from being in that quilted fabric of society. It's yeah. one of the worst things ever happened to humanity. Mm. But in prison, there's no social media. Yeah, There's nothing like that. It's all these people around this little... Prison is a society that is built up with the people in there. The rules are made by the people in there. But when you have someone who comes along that shows them that they can be a better version of themselves. I said four words to people all the time in there, and it wasn't be a coffee bean. It was, I believe in you. Yeah. I believe in you, man. Those four words, every human being needs to hear those four words. Yeah. But I would go around telling these men, I believe in you, man. You can do this, you know. I put the power of belief back in. I changed the way they think. Yeah. The coffee bean thing is just stuck. Yeah. And you're like, I'm going to do it. So yeah. I'm going to fast forward the story for sake of time. Yeah. You get in front of the parole board. You you do well. Yeah. And they go, all right, we're going to give you a shot. Yeah, 2015. And 2015. And so you walk out after seven years? Seven years, three months, 18 days. Not anybody's wow. counting, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> November sixteenth, two 2015. Yeah. You come out. Come out. And this is the part of the story I have not heard. <laughs> this is crazy. What man. happens next? Ken, so do you I've get, got this dream. You can't, you can't get a job, right? Well, I mean, no, I had a job. You? This is God, man. I got a job working at a law firm. I did my own legal work when I was in prison. Got the attention of all these other lawyers in Texas. This law firm in Beaumont, Texas, the Provost Humphrey Law Firm, Walter Humphrey, the head of the firm, read my legal work, and he, he reached out to me in prison. He said, hey, you put together a hell of a writ for a guy who's never been to law school. <laughs> if you ever get out of prison one day, come see me. I got a job. The most prestigious firm in Southeast Texas, man. Wow. He's telling me, come see me if you ever get out. Yeah. Second day You're out like, of prison. I'll hit you up. Yeah. Yeah. I knock on his door. Yeah. He answers at the firm, looks me up and down. There's no teardrop tattoos. No tattoos, right? My mom right. said no tattoos. Looks me up and down. He said, You're hired. And I said, I'll do anything, man. I'll clean, I'll clean gum off the parking lot, whatever it is. He said, you're a paralegal now. You work in the, I worked the pharmaceutical division. I became a paralegal day two out of prison. Wow. Incredible, man. Like instant validation for a guy that needs validation. But I got this dream, Ken. I want to share this story with other audiences. Of course. I want to go talk about my experiences and share this story, the coffee, the message coffee. Bean. Right. I know how powerful it is. I just lived it, right? Right. The thing is, though, I found out you can't just go knock on the door of a school and say, I just got out of prison. I want to talk to your kids. Sure. That's a very poor strategy. Yeah, I found right. They may lock you back up. Right, exactly. I got, I got chased off from school. Yeah, I'm sure. That's so why I had to find people to believe in me. It was a local cop and a local judge. where They were the ones that first escorted me, and I had to be escorted into schools to share sure. the story at the beginning. In my parents' spare bedroom, because I lived with my parents for the first two years on parole. How old are you at this point? 40 years old. Man, Ken. So you come out at 38. I, no, I'm 40. Okay, you come out at 40. Yeah, I'm 40 years old. I'm 40 years old. I'm just out of prison. I'm on parole for the rest of my life. I got a job making just above minimum wage. Right. And I live in my parents' spare bedroom. Right. And it's like, you know, it's better than prison. Yeah, it's better than prison. But which way are you ladies going to swipe on that guy? Yeah, (laughs) yeah, right, right. (laughs) I mean, so I didn't have a Tinder profile, but but I'm joking. No, I get it. Yeah, it's like, you're you're not a number one candidate for a lot of women. No, no, you're not. But I mean, but the thing is, like, I'm not in prison. 
it's the perspective that life gives us, right? If we will take the time to uh, yeah. apply perspective when life gives it to us, mm-hmm. we realize that most of our days aren't bad days. Remember, we just defined a bad day. Divorce, oh, yeah. bankruptcy, jobless. Someone dies. Kid gets hurt. By the way, I, I don't, uh, just real quick, I got to know, does mom and dad pick you up the day you walk out? The day I walk out, man. And mom is there. And she, you've been seeing her? Have they were able to visit? I, my parents came to see me over 150 times in prison. Okay, good. So they, I was just curious. Yeah, Mom knew. Did she look your body up and down? Did she go pull up your sleeves? Oh, no. Every, they, she she saw me every every Saturday. I mean, so she, she they would visit me okay. all the time. But let me tell you something that happened when I walked out of prison. Great to talk about faith in the show. Let's go. I'm walking out the gate, and I'm, I see my parents in the parking lot, and I'm running towards my parents, and I stop. I hit the brakes because the voice is talking to me in my head. It's God. Turn around. So I turn around. I look back. It's the walls. It's the walls of the gate. The, the towers sure. and everything. The barbed wire fence. And God's telling me, "Hey, Damon, you're going to work for me now. I did all this for a reason. The, the part you were talking about breaking sure. you down. Right. I did all this for a reason. You're going to work for me now. Yeah. And and you can have the most incredible life a human being's ever had. People will wonder how does this happen in one person. But here's the catch. It's got to be about me. It can't be about you. The minute it mm-hmm. becomes Damon's show." This is where you're coming back to. Yeah. Let's go to work. Yeah. Then I turn off and run to my parents. My mom was like, why'd you stop? I told my mom. She's like, listen to that. That's God talking to you. I was like, I know, mom. And my mom is telling me in the car, and she's like, hey, I I set you up to go to this church retreat in a couple months. You know, go find your new friends. And that's where you need to find your friends from. My mom was great, man. So I live with my parents when I get out of prison. And um, I want to share this story. So I start going to schools a little bit. Not a lot of place for me to talk, but in my parents' spare bedroom, there is a mirror. Just happens to be there. Just a mirror, a little vanity mirror. Every day for two years that I wasn't out speaking somewhere in public, which is most places, I practiced my presentation from that mirror. The same presentation I got going on the day. Right. I built that into my parents' spare bedroom. Sure. Practiced in front right. of the mirror. Yeah. Got in my it. reps. Yeah. That's the thing about life. You want to be good at something? Right. Go get in your reps. Yeah. Got to get in your reps. I didn't have a place to talk. Yeah. I had a mirror. Right. I had to wait for my opportunity. And and I had this dream too, Ken, to share my story in front of college football programs. Because I played college football, right? This is an audience I can relate right. to. But it, you know, when I got out of prison, I've been out of, I hadn't played college football in twenty years. I hadn't taken a snap right. in twenty years. I don't know any coaches. They don't know me. A buddy of mine invites me to the Bear Bryant Coach of the Year Award. This is on January twelfth, two thousand seventeen. Fourteen months out of prison, he sneaks me in the back door of the Toyota Center where it's being held in Houston that night. The eight best coaches in America are there, and uh, I'm running around and I'm going up and I'm shaking these guys' hands and I'm telling them why they should bring me in to talk to their team. And every coach I meet that night slams the door in my face. They all tell me no. No, no, no. In one hour, I've been told no seven times by eight coaches. Right. I'm in the corner of the Toyota Center, man. I'm licking my wounds. I'm feeling sorry sure. for myself. And the voice in my head is screaming at me, go home. Get right. out of here. What are you? The voice in my head is telling me I'm an imposter. Right. You ever felt like an imposter, kid? Oh, a few oh, times. Oh, the imposter syndrome, yeah. man. Yeah, it's lovely. But I'm going to tell you something I quit doing a long time ago, listening to myself. And, I, and your listeners... You shouldn't listen to yourself either because the voice in your head can be fear talking to you. That's right. So instead of listening to myself, I talk to myself and I'm telling myself, you survive prison. Yeah. You survive something way worse than this. Yeah. That last coach is going to tell you no to your face and then you go home. And y'all, and Ken, the last coach, hardest guy to get to in the room. His team beat Alabama two nights before that for the national championship. Yeah. Everybody wants a piece of Dabo yeah. Sweeney's yeah. time. He's the man. So, man, I stalk Dabo around this room. And I look like a crazy person, man. I'm hiding behind fake plants. I'm jumping out. And, right, you know, looking trying, for one little moment. Yeah, what, yeah, every conversation Dabo has, I'm there. He sees me. I mean, like, I'm every conversation he has, security sees me. They're about to throw me out of the Toyota Center, mm-hmm. but I finally get in front of Dabo. I give him my best stuff for about 60 seconds, and I come up for air, and Dabo's like, you got a card on you? So I gave him my card. 
Dabo snatches it from me. He says, I'll check you out. And he's gone. He takes off. And I'm like, well, that's a no. But you know what I felt good about? That last no. Because I left it all on the field. Or as Muhammad said, you don't have to win what all your fights. What did that mean? What did you say to him? How long did you have? Because I want people 60 to seconds, hear this. Man. 60 seconds what is did, all I had. Can you recall yeah, a version told, of what you said a, to him? You know, Dabo, I need you to give me a shot. I need somebody to give me a shot. I, I got this incredible story. I just got out of prison, and I got this incredible story about transformation from the inside out, about being a coffee bean, and and I want to share it with your players because I can empower them with the story of my life, and I can be a warning to them about the dangers of drugs, the consequence of bad decisions. Right. Packing all this into 60 seconds. Right. And, I mean, man, Dabo has seen me stalk him. I gave him my pitch. And and when Dabo leaves, I mean, that's a no. Uh, it, 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 and it's okay because... Well, you give him your card and he says, I'll check you out. I'll check you out. I mean, everybody and you, else... And, you, and you're deflated on the way home. Deflated, but deflated, but but relieved because I left it all on the field. I didn't quit. Took your shot. Took my shot. The only question you know the answer to in life, Ken, yeah. is the one you don't ask. I get it. That's a no every time. I love 100% it. 100% of the time yeah. you don't ask a question, it's no. The man who aims for nothing hits it every time. That's, that's a great, that's a great you way know? to put it. It's absolutely right. So how long before you get a call from Dabo? Four months. So four months later. Four months later. I'm at work at the law firm. I've forgotten about that night. I get an email from the director of football operations at Clemson, a guy named Mike Dooley. Mike Dooley's email said, hey, Damon, Coach Sweeney met you at Ward Show in Houston. Yeah. He'd love to have you come talk to his team. Do you have August 1st open? <laughs> at I'm which like, point you went yes I'm like, i got every first over bro i got nothing going <laughs> yeah, on that's right life. yeah so august 1st 2017 i go speak to the clemson tigers the defending national champions of college yeah, hottest football. program in the college oh football. man and, and and when i got done my presentation the night dabble's up in my face and, and dabble's a very high energy guy he's as advertised man oh yeah and he's like oh my god he said that's that's the most amazing story i've ever heard right and he said have you been to alabama yet to talk to their football team and i'm like no uh, Dabo, no i've been to Clemson. Right, right. <laughs> he said, well, I just text Nick Saban. Let's see what happens. Next day, I get a voicemail and a text message from Saban's director of football operations. See you in Tuscaloosa in three weeks. Are You're you? Off. What are you thinking at this point? Dude, the power of the belief of one person in your life. Dabo Sweeney just believed in me. Yeah. And he picked the phone. He calls Nick Saban, yeah. arguably the best two coaches in yeah. college football. And you, you're just like, okay, I'm just okay, God. I'm just going to keep doing this. Let's go. I'm like, let's go. And, and but remember, I have prepared for this day because that's I worked, what I wanted people to. Remember. I worked on that presentation, man. I've prepared for this yeah. day. Yeah. Dabo didn't hear a guy coming yeah. and giving his twelfth presentation. My all time favorite quote on preparation. You're going to love this if you haven't heard it. It's from John Wooden, the legendary basketball coach at UCLA. He said, "When opportunity comes, Clemson." Yeah. Football team. When opportunity comes, it's too late to prepare. Yeah. Like fixing a leaky roof in the rain, right? You, you have prepared for this moment. I'm sure you were nervous. Oh, yeah, I was nervous. But I mean... Uh, what's but, your nerve level when you're talking? You're giving a talk and Nick Saban's on the front row with his sockless it's interesting that you, that, It's interesting that you said that because Nick Saban is the only coach in America that sits the front row center seat. I know. I've seen it many times. And it is like... And he is taking notes and he's watching you. How How nervous were you? A uh, little, but not, not, I've got perspective. You know, I lived in prison. You know, I've faced, I've That's faced, a very good point. I've you, faced you, some serious been, challenges. I didn't and, think about that. And I apply that, I apply this perspective all the time. Ken, every day that I wake up and my feet don't hit the cold concrete floor of the prison cell, it's a I'm good day. win. It's I'm a winning. good day. Yeah. So you're like, it's Nick Saban. It's Nick Saban. He's not coming after me with a shiv. No, man. He's not. Yeah. It's a different perspective. Yeah. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be locked right, in my so cell. I wanna, so I go, so I talked to Alabama, then Kirby Smart's. Georgia, me, Georgia, Lincoln Riley, all these coaches. Now you're on the circuit. Now I'm on the circuit, man. Things are going. I'm living this dream. 
But I didn't even know what was going to happen next, man. No. This is man plans and God laughs, kid. Exactly. So August of 2018, I'm at work at the law firm. My cell phone rings. Oh, the other the other end of my cell phone is this guy named John Gordon. Yeah, good friend of mine. Been on this program. Our man, the biggest one of the biggest motivational speakers and authors in America. Biggest keynote speaker there is. Millions of books sold. John calls me up. He says, hey, Damon, I got your number from Dabo. He said, I just talked to the Clemson football team, and Dabo brought me in the office for 30 minutes afterwards to tell me your entire story. Wow. He said, but Dabo told me the story of the coffee bean. And John said, Damon, John said this before the pandemic. He said, the world needs the coffee bean message, Damon. Let's deliver this message to the world. Write a book with me. We'll call it the coffee bean. Right. The summer of 2019, the coffee bean comes out. Exactly 10 years from when I first heard the story from Muhammad in a jail cell yeah. in Dallas County. This book comes out, takes the world by storm. Bestseller in America, gets a global publishing deal. That book is on the shelves of all these other countries. Chinese, Spanish, Arabic, French, Italian, German, yeah. Korean. But it all goes back to that one night in Houston, Texas, January 12th, 2017, after seven no's, and the voice in my head is telling me to leave. And if I listen to the voice in my head that night, Ken, yeah. we're not having this conversation today. Right. The world doesn't have the coffee bean message. Yeah. And that's what I tell people all the time. You can't give up in life. You can't yeah. quit before the miracle happens, before your dabble Sweeney moment. Yeah, I, I think it goes back even further. And you know this. It goes back to a moment in prison where an old guy, an old African-American guy who's converted yeah. to, to Islam, and he's just sitting there looking at you, and he tells you, boom. And he yeah. drops this little story on you. And those four words, you're on your way to the penitentiary, and you decide to believe that. That story, the power of that story has turned into an amazing story for you. You've truly lived this out, and I love this. I want to wrap the conversation because the audience needs to hear this. Uh, we're back in the story a little bit. You're out, and you want to hunt this guy down and say, hey, you got me through. This yeah. story got me through. This is the most frequent question I get, too, man. Have you ever found Yeah, Muhammad? and so we got to wrap it with this. Take us through that story. So this is, and this is the thing, like this is uh, the one word in life I tell people to, to tie all your goals, all your ambitions in life, tie it to one word, integrity. Integrity is who you are when no one else is watching. If you have integrity in all the things you do, yeah. you have a life worth living. You have a life that God is happy of. That's, mm. that's what, because that's what we're about. We're supposed to be integrity people. So I get out of prison in 2015. I go back to Dallas County Jail. Um, I ask him, I said, I'm trying to find my friend Muhammad. And they're like, listen, Mr. West, we don't have any records of a Muhammad. Uh, we need his real name or his birth date. So I, I go home empty-handed. And um, I had to hope that one day he would find me. And here's how he found me. A, an inmate in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice wrote me a letter. And in this letter, it said, find James Lynn Baker and you find Muhammad. It's obviously somebody that's read sure. my book. So I go back to Dallas. We find James Lynn Baker's criminal record. Matched everything he told me. In and out of prison his entire life. Hmm. Had him in Dallas County Jail when I was there in 2009. And, um, Unfortunately, I found out that he was dead. James Lynn Baker II, Muhammad, he died on May 9th, 2017 of an opiate overdose in Dallas, Texas. Mm. Drug addict just like me, but he never got to a program recovery. Never got a way to deal with the shame. I'm, a guess, I'm guessing you were profoundly sad when you found oh, that out. Yeah, man. What, what did you want to say to him? Thank you for saving my life. You gave me the message that, that transformed my life because now I knew that the power is inside me. Um, I also wanted to tell him I became a coffee bean because he told me, he said, you'll probably become the egg. Because I asked him, I said, what, what's going to happen? He said, you're going to probably become the egg. Wow. Um, so, could you imagine? Do you ever wonder? Do you ever just think, I wish Muhammad could see all of this now? Yeah, but I do think he's seeing it. I think that um, he sees it from a different place. Mm -hmm. But I found his family because I knew I had to honor him. Mm -hmm. That's the part about integrity. I mm -hmm. can't just take this message and run with it. I found his family. 
Um, and he's from a very poor part of Dallas, inner city part of Dallas. So I started a scholarship. Every year I put $10,000 into a trust for a scholarship in his name. It's called the James Lynn Baker II Be a Coffee Bean Scholarship. And his family picks the winner of that scholarship every year. So every year, one little boy or one little girl that grows up in his old neighborhood, goes to his old high school, Dallas Lincoln, gets a better chance at life through an education because these two guys met up wow. in Dallas County Jail. What was it like when you found his sister? Was it just one that you originally... But did you, so you met all three of them at the same time? I, I met them on the phone. So, it, it so was, you tell them this whole story. Yeah, well, how I met the, their brother in Dallas County Jail in 2009. And What's their reaction to this? Blown away and shocked. And here's the thing that I found out. There was a lot of... This is all pre-book, right? Yeah, this is, uh, yeah, this is all, yeah, it, this is, no, this happened, this happened after I've, I've become, this is a, just two years ago. Okay, so this is after the success of the book. Yeah, this And you reach out the to them, yeah, so now it, their mind is blown. Their this, mind is blown, and they, yeah. they, you know, and they're looking me up as I'm talking to them, they're like, you know, wow, I mean, this is like. <laughs> yeah, it has to be so overwhelming for it's them. It's overwhelming for them, and, but I told them, I said, listen, I don't know what your feelings are about your brother and the choice made in life, but I need you to understand, your brother impacted at least one person while he was on this planet, and that one person, me, I'm going to impact the entire planet with the message you gave me. Well, he has a huge investment in all the stuff that you've that God's given you. Oh man, it's it's so incredible. cool. It's so it's was it emotional of, for them? Very emotional for them. Here's what I found out. We'll wrap up with this point. This goes deep. I think by every metric, you can see that I am a redeemed man. I am. I'm yeah, a, I'm, absolutely. A, I'm a success story in every way possible. Husband, stepfather businessman, entrepreneur, uh, speaker, professor, author. motivator, people of a uh, deliver of hope, yeah. all of these things. You can say it. Damon West is a redeemed man. But here's what I learned when I found him. Part of him giving me the message of the coffee bean in 2009 was so that one day I could redeem him mm. because his life was constantly spent in and out of prisons on drugs. The sisters told me, you know, he would get out of prison, come live with them until he burned that bridge down and went back to prison. Mm. They told me there wasn't a lot of good to say about their brother. They were shocked that I had a good story about their brother. In fact, at first, they didn't know what I was going to tell them because I, I opened it up by saying I was locked up with your brother, and immediately they thought something horrible and negative was going to come out of my mouth. But they were shocked to find out that something good came out of his life. But when those sisters talk about their brother now, they're back. As a yeah. Man. There's so much pride. Yeah. My brother is the guy that told Damon West, look what Damon West is doing because my brother helped Damon West. Yeah. I restored that man to his family. I changed the view that a family has mm -hmm. towards a deceased person. What's the value of that, Ken? Yeah. How much price can you put on that? Uh, it's priceless. And 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 I I can't help but wonder who shared the coffee bean story. I asked him with Muhammad. Who was the one that told him about it? And they they agreed that it had to be their grandma because the grandma always spoke in parables. Interesting. And I said, had y'all ever heard it? They said no. But Damon, we never needed to hear it. You did. So the power of this, and I have goosebumps all over me. Um, Crazy, man. I, I'm, I'm getting choked. The, the, the grandmother or someone tells Muhammad this story. Yeah. We started this conversation with you sharing your story of addiction, and you shared that it's about shame. And, and then I said, it's, it's ultimately about value. Shame comes when we feel like we've done something or something somebody's done something to us where our value has been decreased. Right. Shame is a shame is a result of a decrease of value. It takes away. And I'm sitting here thinking right now somebody tells this prisoner the story. This dude looks at you, transfers that story to you. He never believed that he could be it, but he thought that you could. I mean, at the end of the day, oh. he shares a story 
but he never recovers. He ends up dying from an overdose. That's the warning in the story. You can sit on all the knowledge oh, in the world. You could have all the knowledge in the world. You can be yeah. the smartest person mm. that ever walked this earth, but if you can't apply your own knowledge, it's so true. Does you no good. And that's just what he set on that message his entire life, and he, he died did. in his addiction. He died in his addiction, and that's what's ho- that's heavy on me. Yeah, yeah. You can Whew. you can have it all. I mean, I, at some point, it's you, a warning to me. Yeah, I all of ha- us. I can have the. Co- I, I've got the coffee bean, right? I'm living it. But if I stop living yeah. the principles of being a coffee bean. And, then, and and that's the warning. That's if the warning. you don't feel today, folks, and if you've got somebody in your life that needs this message, I'm begging you to share this. If if you lose sight of your value, it's deadly. 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 You could die in it. And and, and your soul dies, and then the body follows. That's it. And I just that's just hit me. How sad. Yeah. But, how but still redeeming and profound that he never truly believed it, that right. he could be a coffee bean. But he thought, I think maybe you can. Right. Pretty interesting. Pretty wild, man. We'll leave it at that. Damon West, the book is The Coffee Bean. Uh, I think it's a must read. I think it's a great gift this time of year, which can be a very dark time of year for sure. Um, but thanks for coming and, and hanging out. I got to go process all this. It's just Brother, it's I appreciate so it. beautiful. I appreciate the Love opportunity. It. Anytime we get a chance to share it, especially with an audience yeah. the size of yours, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. It's part of the journey. It's part yeah. of what I was supposed to do, brother. Well, and keep doing it. Hey, man, keep I appreciate it. it. And I believe that uh, you're going to get, you're going to get, uh, the parole is going to, you're going to be pardoned. Uh, I, I'm praying for a pardon since the first time I met you. I <laughs> we'll see, man. We'll see. That's that's on God's line, not on my line. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it's going to happen. So great. Damon Watts, thank you. Thanks, brother. Hope you enjoyed the conversation with Damon West. You can get his book, The Coffee Bean, wherever books are sold. And hey, if you're enjoying these type of conversations, help us spread the word. Like, share, subscribe, and come back. We'll see you soon.